Today's Binge Mode is brought to you by Luca and Danny. Luca and Danny jewelry is the perfect gift for the women you are most grateful for this holiday season. Whether it's that special someone, mm. a mother, ah. daughter, oh. friends, oh. or even yourself. From their iconic bangle bracelets and stacks to beautiful rings, necklaces, and earrings, each piece symbolizes what matters to her most and is handcrafted right here in the United States of America. Whatever your style is, whatever your interests are, you can find something that's right for you. Got a delightful love knot ring, which, listen, a few of the people in the film that we're going to be talking about today, they might need a love knot ring. A lot of tangled love lives in this film. Go to lucadanny.com and use the code B-I-N-G-E. M-O-D-E, binge mode, to get 15% off and free shipping on your first purchase. That's L-U-C-A-D-A-N-N-I dot com. Luca and Danny, embrace the journey. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. Newt Scamander has a foot fetish. Boy, does he. So we're going to discuss that, and if that's not something that you'd like to hear about, about the delicate feet of Tina Goldstein. So slender. Please check out one of the other non-foot fetish podcasts on the Ringer (laughs) Podcast Network, (laughs) such as the Danacy Podcast, where Danny Heifetz and Danny Kelly talk about not being in love with feet. I would not be so sure that's true. (laughs) One more warning. (laughs) (laughs) Binge Mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why we're reading up on Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius. Please proceed mm. with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. Do you know why I admire you, Nick? You do not seek power. You simply ask, is the thing right? Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. Yeah. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website with such delicate feet. <laughs> so narrow. Have you ever noticed? Oh, yeah. I have. <laughs> Can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> Joining me today. Now that he's finished removing all crying babies from his presence. I just wanted peace for a moment. <laughs> Ringer senior creative. Your head... Magizoologist, uh. Jason Concepcion. Mel, I never wanted to hurt him. <laughs> I only wanted to be free of him just for a moment. <laughs> if only I'd been able to listen to Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether or not you've wondered if the Titanic appeared in a Harry Potter film. Sorry, Jason Gallagher, but the math says that ain't it, Chief. Nope. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And please rate and review us five points and stars for Binge Mode. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. And join our Facebook group, which is just for Le Binge Mode fans, and which is an excellent place to swap tips for removing a parasite from one's eye with tweezers. I know what they are. Please also head to the ringer.com slash shop to check out our new Binge Mode merch. Very comfortable. 
if you might at any point pass out in a sewer. It's very <laughs> tough. Last time on Binge with Harry Potter, we explored how secrets shape 2016's Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. The first film in the planned five-part film wow. franchise. And today, we're diving into the series' second installment, mm. Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, which debuted on November 16th. Yes. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While the second Beast film is today's primary focus, we will be going deep. On details from all seven books, and eight original films, mm. and two Beast films, and the wider Potter canon. Taking the entire series into account from yes. the moment we take a Thestral carriage ride. So, just Beautiful. to reiterate, we want to be clear. Do not proceed with this episode do unless not. you have seen The Crimes of Grindelwald this weekend. Because there will be spoilers. But if you did see it this weekend, then please listen to this pod. Also, check out our Instant Reaction 7 Key Questions video breakdown of the film that we did on TheRinger.com and The Ringer's YouTube channel. Isaac, Lee, and Zach Cram joined us for that. Also, check out our discussion of the film with Sean Fennessy on the Big Picture Podcast, one of our favorite muggles over there. Check out our various other coverage across Ringer properties. Uh-huh. And get ready for the return of our Deathly Hallows pods this week. For now, fork over your galleons, grab your port key bucket, because it's time to head to Paris. No Hogwarts Express today, because we've mm-hmm. got a lot to cover. We're tight on time, just like the filmmakers. Yeah. But we did first want to share two notes with you before we get to the seven. First. Yes. We want to clarify our process for prepping for this pod today. We have seen the film, and also we have the screenplay, because they sell the screenplays for these movies, which is a savvy business strategy, gotta say. smart. So there might be a couple quotes, for example, where the language that we're quoting here, which is from the screenplay that we have, is slightly different than what you recall hearing in the film. That would explain it. Correct. But— Also, this is going to allow us to bring in some new details, some stage directions, some descriptions of how characters are looking or thinking. Not obviously on par with what we'd have from a book from which a film was adapted, but a little bit more that we can go on. And given the reception for the film so far, we wanted to be able to call on as much information as possible. And there is a wealth of information in there, particularly in the stage directions. Yes. And we'd also like to note that this is the film where the story really pivots to becoming less of a Newt story and more of the Dumbledore backstory. And as such, obviously, a big part of that is going to be Grindelwald, who is played here by Johnny Depp. Depp is in about, I'd say, about 40% of the movie. Quite a bit of the film. And it is quite unfortunate, considering Depp's ongoing other issues, that they didn't recast this film, considering that he appears in 45 seconds of the first film, and it would be quite easy to say, oh, he doesn't, because of X, Y, and Z magical reason, Right, he now looks like Percival Graves again, or whoever. Particularly given that human transfiguration was part of his storyline in the first film, it would have been so easy to have a different actor play him. And he changes his appearance literally within the first minute and a half of the film. Yes. It is a very distressing choice, and now we see how much of the franchise moving forward will be focusing on this character and thus focusing on Depp's performance. And so we did just want to take a moment to address that and share our feelings with all of you and our lament that this role was not recast. Well said. Jason? Yeah. 
everyone is scared of something. Today, we're going to try to work through those fears by discussing the second film in the Fantastic Beast franchise. We're going to hand out some superlatives. Yeah. Some house points or maybe deduct some house points. Let's dish out seven awards because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. Number one, first, as always, the big idea. And in this case, persuasion. For sure, for sure. So much of what makes Grindelwald different from Voldemort is that he is persuasive. And they address this right away. Right at the beginning of the movie, we get our first look at Grindelwald as he's held in his cell, a very destructive force field around him. Pickery, the Makusa president, is talking with Spielman, who's the envoy from Europe. And she's saying, and we had to change his guards three times because Mm -hmm. he's just extremely persuasive. And this is without a wand also. Mm -hmm. Like, he just emits a force, an extremely, like, almost kind of like a diabolical figure. I kept thinking about, like, how is Voldemort different from this guy? And Voldemort is just about pure power. And we'll see over the course of the film as Grindelwald begins to lay out his ideology and his philosophy that Grindelwald is very smartly portraying magical people as threatened. We've got a threat. There's a threat coming towards us. Yes, we're extremely powerful, but we're threatened. And this is very seductive to a lot of people. The Ministry of Magic, of course, knows how persuasive Grindelwald is as well. It's not just the Makusa administration that realizes this. Everyone does. And thus, the Ministry needs to try to persuade others to join its side, people who aren't necessarily a part of this government apparatus. And that includes, in the case of this film, one of the inciting incidents is trying to get Newt to join them, specifically by leveraging his travel ban in order to convince him to work for the ministry. Oh, you want to go around the world looking for your creatures? Great. Do this for us. Find credence, because, of course, that can then thwart Grindelwald in their mind. And there's a moment when Arnold Guzman, who is identified as an American ministry official, says, Mr. Scamander, the wizarding and non-wizarding worlds have been at peace for over a century. Grindelwald wants to see that peace destroyed. And for certain members of our community, his message is very seductive. This is important. Mm -hmm. They actually understand how appealing what Grindelwald is spewing is to so many people, particularly, of course, purebloods, who, as Guzman notes, see it as their right to rule over the magical and non-magical worlds alike. He says they see Grindelwald as their hero. The mission that they propose for Newt is that he find credence who is alive, and this is news to Newt, who, as far as Newt is concerned, saw Credence explode into wisps of black obscurial material. Learning this and then seeing Grimson, who is basically a mercenary slash assassin for Mm -hmm. the ministry, and it's clear that Newt and this person have history because Newt reacts with absolute fury upon seeing him, like, oh my God, this guy. That's all the reminder that Newt needs that he doesn't want any part of this. And I think that's an important thing to note about Newt's character is he's always enjoyed the natural world more than the kind of political infighting Mm -hmm. magical world. Right. And that's, of course, part, not only, but part of what is at the heart of his fractured relationship with his brother Theseus, who is a character in this film. They are different in every respect. He sees Theseus as a sellout. Essentially. Yes. And that's basically part of why he thinks Tina is so special. She's one of the few people who's chosen to be a middle part head. of the bureaucracy. She exactly. Got the, she middle got the head. Middlehead. Newt wants some middlehead. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> who 
isn't just caught up in the way the machine <laughs> operates and thinks. And right. there's this moment after Newt passes on the ministry's offer, which is really a bribe, yeah. and leaves. And Theseus, of course, disappointed, comes out and says, you know, everyone is going to have to make a choice here. Yeah. Everyone is going to have to pick a side. And what is Newt's response? It's an iconic Newt line. I don't do sides. This is part of the character we were introduced to so effectively mm-hmm. in the first film. What function do the beasts serve in these movies? What function do the creatures serve? They show us what kind of heart Newt has. Right. And it's imperative because we don't see him interact openly mm-hmm. with too many people. He finds comfort and peace and solitude. And these animals bring out these nurturing instincts in him in a way that only a few people, including two lovely ladies that we'll spend with a lot of feet. time talking about today with narrow feet and salamander eyes. That's wonderful. <laughs> And of course, the ministry isn't the only entity trying to persuade Newt to do something for Uh them. Dumbledore is as well. After Newt evades the ministry, Dumbledore's glove appears to him. Points down the street, up at a figure who's standing up on St. Paul's Cathedral, beginning really one of the most fun sequences in the entire movie. Truly great. And we see right away that the history that Graves and Grindelwald hinted at in the questioning and that interrogation scene in Beast One is actually very real. Graves slash Grindelwald clearly suspected that something was up with this guy, Newt, just in the way he spoke to him, the way he referenced his catchphrase for the greater good. So much so that Grindelwald wanted to immediately cut that tie, close that loop, and try to have Tina and Newt immediately put to death. And here we find out that, yes, in fact, Dumbledore did send Newt to New York. To what end? For what reason? Newt himself doesn't know the answer to that, to why Dumbledore sent him to New York. He, just like Grindelwald in a way, senses Dumbledore's hand. You know, we learn here that Dumbledore is the one who told Newt about Frank the Thunderbird. And Newt basically says, you knew what I would do. You knew knew that I would take him through a Muggleport to New York. So when we hear that line from Percival Graves in the first film, what makes Albus Dumbledore so fond of you? We've spent the last two years between films wondering about Mm -hmm. that. And one of the things that this film actually does do interestingly in terms of serving its function as a step along the way is give us a little bit more of an answer to that question without giving us all of it. Mm -hmm. We leave with just as many questions about the relationship between Newt and Dumbledore. Now we learn a lot about what Dumbledore sees in Newt but we don't know everything that happened in the past, and it seems like we'll find out more still. Dumbledore asks, hey, how was that meeting you just had with the ministry? And Newt now gets down to brass tacks. And here, Dumbledore starts to bring Newt into this next phase of the mission. He tells Newt that Credence is in Paris. And to get back to the point that you made a minute ago about Newt not knowing that Credence had survived, it's really fascinating to think about that because— Newt had an Obscurus in his case. You know, Newt, we're led to believe from the first Beast movie, knows more about Obscurials and Obscuruses than almost anyone. Very few people would know as much. And yet it was a shock to him that Credence could survive that, which plays into the idea that even the most expert people in this world still don't understand Credence, don't understand what they're dealing with here. And Dumbledore starts to say, I take it you've heard the rumors about who he really is. Newt (laughs) says he is not. Newt's not up on the gossip mags. Like everyone else is, apparently. He doesn't realize that he's literally been in the gossip bags. No idea that he's just been in Spellbound. (laughs) Cover boy with Bunty. 
Dumbledore says the purebloods think he's the last of an important French line, a baby whom everyone thought lost. And this will be one of the through lines of the film. Not only Credence's search for the truth of his parentage, but everyone else's search to either prevent that information from coming to light or to find it or to find it and use it for different means. Or to steer him towards an answer that may or may not be the truth. Indeed. And Dumbledore continues, that's what they're whispering. Pure blood or not, I know this. This is one of the great lines in the film. An obscurus grows in the absence of love as a dark twin and only friend. If Credence has a real brother or sister out there who can take its place, he might yet be saved. This is huge, obviously, both for the idea of persuasion, Dumbledore appealing to Newt's nurturing, caring instincts here that he would want to save Credence, that he would want to help him. Also, obviously, massive for the Credence family reveal that ends the film. So Dumbledore says... We may not know who he is yet, but he needs to be found. I'd rather hope you'd be the one to find him. Ah, here it is. Here's the mission now. Finally laid it out on the line. Newt, I'd like you to go to Paris and find Credence. Newt, of course, has a lot of things on his plate already. He's got the travel ban. Doesn't want to run afoul of that. And he tells Dumbledore, listen, if I'm caught leaving the country, they're going to throw me an ask they're going to throw away the key. And Dumbledore then... And this is a great parallel to Harry, in fact, and the way that we feel about him and the way we perceive him. He says, do you know why I admire you, Newt, more perhaps than any man I know? And Newt is surprised at this. You don't seek power or popularity. You simply ask, is the thing right in itself? If it is, then I must do it, no matter the cost. And this is important because we see now that Even years before the events of the Second Wizarding War, when Harry Potter would come into his life, Dumbledore is drawn to these people who are not ambitious, who are talented, who maybe have run afoul of the government or different power structures, maybe expelled from school, but their heart is pure. They do not seek to wield their power against other people, to oppress them in any way. They're not power hungry. They simply care about what is right and what is wrong. Remember, of course, what Dumbledore will say to Harry in King's Cross, Mm -hmm. a chapter that will come up more than once on today's podcast. He says, it is a curious thing, Harry, but perhaps those who are best suited to power are those who have never sought it. Those who, like you, have leadership thrust upon them and take up the mantle because they must and find to their own surprise that they wear it well. This moment between Dumbledore and Newt is so powerful because it not only forges this bridge between Newt and Harry, but it forges a contrast between Newt and Dumbledore. Dumbledore knows that he is not this man, that he is not this person that he's describing. And this is so powerful because, as we're going to discuss the blood pact and everything that that means, what that extra knowledge means for the history between Dumbledore and Grindelwald, but this idea is also still in play. If the blood pact didn't exist, and there wasn't a magical reason prohibiting Dumbledore from moving— this fear about himself and his own nature would still be there, and that is huge. We're going to come back to Grindelwald in a minute. Let's talk about our girl, Queenie, for a hot second here, because this is about where she enters the film. Right. So Newt is at home dealing with his various animals and his menagerie that he has in his basement, along with Bunty. Comes upstairs, and who should he find? But Queenie and Jacob, his old friends, smashing his crockery in the living room. Terrible. Come to discover that Queenie and Jacob are to be married. Apparently, the rules against intermarriage between wizarding kind and muggle kind is a lot more strict in the States, to the point where if you're found to have 
a relationship with a non-magical person, you could get thrown in their right. version of Azkaban. Right. So Newt, over dinner, starts to realize Jacob seems strange. Mm-hmm. And in the screenplay, he's described as appearing drunk. Appearing drunk, laughing, trying to drink from the salt shaker, yes. <laughs> trying to pour a beer into his ear. <laughs> so Newt stands up and is like, well, you wouldn't mind, of course, if I, and Queenie reacts very defensively. Right. Newt no- sniffs it out in a hurry. Something is Right off. away. Lifts the enchantment on Jacob. And now all of a sudden, Jacob realizes what has occurred. He doesn't even know how he got to London. He right. doesn't even know how he came to be here. The way that the stage direction is phrased here in the yeah. screenplay is, this is from Newt's perspective, he realizes he, meaning Jacob, has been taken against his will. Mm-hmm. And... Think about the way that we've talked about love potions and that type of magic throughout the original seven books. This obviously is not a love potion, but it's under that umbrella of an enchantment that is meant to lure somebody into some sort of relationship that they don't want to be in. We root for Queenie. We want Queenie to be happy. Queenie's arc in the first film and the Queenie-Jacob relationship in particular is one of the real hearts of the Beast franchise so far. And so this is... A devastating moment because you don't want to believe that Queenie could be a person who did a thing like this. And especially when after in her shame, she flees, dropping your postcard, by the way, clarified in the screenplay. And Jacob pursues her and says, you don't need to enchant me. I'm already enchanted. We realize that he wants to be with her. He specifically doesn't want her to be in danger. Right. He doesn't want her to get in trouble to literally go to jail. Right. And this. so these are two people who want the same thing but can't find their way there together. And it's really, really tragic. And it starts to lay the foundation for Queenie's turn in this mm-hmm. film because all she wants, all she wants is love, pure love. And somebody who is illegitimate, is an empath, can sense thoughts and feelings yeah. and can't really control her ability to sense them. It's always been a struggle for her, we saw this in the first film, to form a pure relationship with other people, not worrying about whether she was intruding on their mind Mm -hmm. or whether she was gleaning things that other people wouldn't have to worry about. Outside of the enchantment, we see in this scene with Newt and Jacob that the boundaries that she's able to keep up that keep other people's thoughts out are tenuous at best. The moment when Newt realizes that he's enchanted, he thinks in his head, you've enchanted him, haven't you? And she answers him out loud after reading his mind. What? No, I haven't. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge hint at what is to come. The fact that Queenie just can't help but be in other people's minds when they have strong thoughts, strong emotions, just break down those barriers. And she just responds to them out loud as if they had been spoken out loud, really laying the groundwork for Queenie's turn to come. Yes. And we'll talk about Queenie and Grindelwald in a second here, but just continuing with Queenie and Jacob for a second. When he finds her in the amphitheater, because he has followed her to Paris, followed her to the cemetery, tried to find her, desperately tried to find her. And there are moments where she's tried to find him, too, as she's running through the rain-soaked streets and she can hear his thoughts. And in the amphitheater, she says to him, I just thought maybe we could hear him first, meaning Grindelwald. You know, just listen, that's all. The seeds that Grindelwald planted with her that we'll explore in a second blossomed very quickly because this was ripe soil. And that's part of what makes Grindelwald so dangerous, that he can identify successfully targets that are ready to be exploited. Part of the reason that Newt is able to sniff out that the amphitheater gathering is a trap is because Queenie's there. He says, Queenie, the family tree, it's all been bait. But the bait ultimately 
works, at least in certain respects. Queenie says to Jacob, he's the answer. He wants what we want. And then she goes through. And how did she get to that point of being primed enough to make that decision? We should remember that Percival Graves would have been aware of Queenie. He interacted with Tina. Queenie is Tina's sister. Grindelwald impersonated Graves for quite some time. So he He would have known. He would have known about her. Also, Abernathy, who's one of his acolytes, was in love with her. In love with her, right? There are plenty of things in the film where we're like, eh, we're not sure. It could be X, Y, or Z. This this one— This is something that we are increasingly sure about. I would put it at 80%. Like, we're pretty sure. When we first saw the film, we were like, man, it really seems as if Queenie was targeted specifically Mm -hmm. as part of Grindelwald's plot. He needed her for some reason, both because of the way Vinda— why do we always say it like that? <laughs> because of the way Vinda right. finds her in the street in the middle of the film, yes. and because of the way at the very end, how closely she is working with Grindelwald mm-hmm. right away. Clearly, he had plans for her. And reading the screenplay has really hammered that home to us. It, it seems pretty legit that Grindelwald was tailoring his message, part of his plan, in order to bring Queenie into the fold. There is the tea visit with. Vinda, <laughs> where he steps in and he talks about her vulnerability. I wish you were working with me now toward a world where we wizards are free to live openly and to love freely, he mm-hmm. tells her. And if we know one thing about Grindelwald mm-hmm. is that he does not believe this. <laughs> no. But he is willing to use this line because he wants to bring Queenie in. He knows that this is what she desperately wants, a place in a world that accepts her and her love. Yes. And when he is— he's offering that. When he is sort of echoing that same propaganda at the rally in the amphitheater, and he is, again, speaking about living for love and living for truth, he is directing his statement to her because he needs to seal it. He needs to bring her in, we think, for credence, which we will explore more momentarily. And the last thing that we wanted to note here with Queenie is the possibility that maybe something nefarious had occurred that— locked her in here. Because, of course, part of her storyline is her enchanting someone else, so it's natural to wonder, did someone enchant her? We think that it's a much more powerful storytelling choice if she acts of her own free will here. Not only because of what it tells us about Grindelwald's power of persuasion, but because of what it reinforces about what Queenie really wants, which is belonging and the encouragement to pursue love unencumbered. Even her own sister, even Tina, doesn't support the life she wants to make with Jacob. But well before we get to the amphitheater at the end, between that moment and when the ministry fails to convert Newt, they make a play at someone else. That's right. Albus Dumbledore. Travers and co. Travers, very tough guy. Show up and ask Dumbledore about Newt and Paris. So they say that we know that Newt is in Paris. We suspect that you sent him there. And Dumbledore says, if you'd ever had the pleasure to teach him, you'd know Newt is not a great follower of orders. Well, luckily, Dumbledore is not a... (laughs) Not exactly a guy for giving clear orders anyway. Um, Travers brings up the predictions of Tycho Dodonis, which is our first mention of these poems by Tycho Dodonis that will figure heavily into the motivations and the beliefs of a lot of people in this movie and in this world. Dumbledore responds, yeah, many years ago I read them. Mm-hmm. Travers says that the rumors are that it refers to the obscurial and that the rumors say that Grindelwald wants as Dumbledore says, quote, a high-born henchman. Travers 
quite trenchantly says, and yet Scamander appears wherever the Obscurial goes to protect him. Dumbledore says, your policies of suppression and violence are pushing supporters into his arms. Nice synergy here with Dumbledore's very same objections to the ministry in the original Harry Potter series. But the ministry needs him. Yes. The conversation is about Grindelwald and his immense power. Travers has another great line where he basically gives Dumbledore his props. And it's like, listen, I don't like you. But he says, you're the only wizard who is his equal. I need you to fight him. Of course, we will learn later that Dumbledore can't because of the blood pact. But it's a sign of how desperate things are that Travers has to reach out to this person who he openly dislikes and who's clearly objected to being used in this way numerous times. So Dumbledore says, I cannot. And then Travers says, is it because of this? And then he calls forth these pictures of Dumbledore and Grindelwald together that are quite juicy. Indeed. Some questions raised by this. How did Travers get these pictures? What do we think about these? Travers says, as they're watching these moving images of young Grindelwald and young Dumbledore, you and Grindelwald were close as brothers. And Dumbledore on the screen with some sadness says, we were closer than brothers. From the script, Dumbledore is looking at the pictures. These memories are agony. He is full of remorse, but almost worse, nostalgia for the only time in his life he felt fully understood. That brought me up short when I read it in the yeah, script. that's incredible. Obviously, understanding Dumbledore's heart and mind and yeah. where he is with his own feelings for Grindelwald is the central tension of the story at yeah. this point. And he speaks throughout the film of regret. There's a beautiful moment between him and Leto where he talks about this, and we'll get to that in a second. And what we see with the mirror, what Newt and Dumbledore discuss with the blood pact, all of it falls into the same zone. He still loves this person. Yeah. He knows what he has become. And that, of course, is part of what is so disturbing to him, is that despite knowing that, he can't stop feeling this way about yeah. this person. And what does that mean about who he is, if he's capable of feeling that way. And when Travers says again, will you fight him? Dumbledore is described in the screenplay as being pained when he responds, I can't. And again, we know because of what we learn in the movie that part of that is the magic of the blood pact. Mm -hmm. And part of it is his own being, just the state and fundamental nature yes. of who he is and how he still feels about this person at this moment in time. And so here Travers comes in and he puts at monitors, these tracking bracelets, in essence, yeah. on Dumbledore that he says will tell him every spell that he casts. And then he says that Dumbledore won't be able to teach defense anymore. Referenced a moment ago, this conversation between Lita and Newt. So let's spend a moment talking about Lita Lestrange because, boy, does she have a lot of work to do in this movie. <laughs> Lita, who is at Hogwarts at this time with Travers, with Theseus, with the ministry, she goes back to an old classroom and she opens a desk and sees their initials, you know, Newton Lita's initials scratched into the desk, young love. And then we flash back to learn more about their origin story together. And we learn how Lita never belonged, how bullied she was by other students, how out of place she was, how Newt was one of the few people who understood her, and how nobody else, including Dumbledore right here, right now in the modern yeah. day, as we pull back out of these memories, could ever persuade her that she was good and that she belonged. And we can see through these memories that Newt was the only person who ever did that for her. And then when she is speaking to Dumbledore, they move from Lita and their history together 
to speaking about lost siblings and regret. And Dumbledore tries very hard here. He tries to reach out. To steer her yeah. toward the light. To persuade her. He says it's never too late to free yourself. Confession is a relief, I'm told. I'm told. <laughs> a great weight lifted. And then he adds, regret is my constant companion. Do not let it become yours. A really lovely scene. Every single scene with Jude Law in this movie is fabulous. He's incredible. And the ones where he is tapping into Dumbledore's regret and the pain that has guided his life, those are the highlights. And a a moment like this, advice like this, that then we can connect back to our our original stories and think about when we do see him confess, when we do see that relief wash over him, when he finally bears his soul to Harry, those are the moments where the film is most successful. When you can tap into those connections and feel joy and enhancement of something you've cared about for so long. Another part of Lita's story within the theme of persuasion is her unburdening herself of that regret, mm-hmm. trying to lift that weight of regret. And what we come to find out is Lita killed a baby, guys. <laughs> Lita killed a baby. Lita killed a baby. A crying baby, though. Crying so much on the ship and in closed quarters. Did they not have pacifiers? I don't know. It's 1901. They probably just like a plank of wood. (laughs) (laughs) So we've reached the point where Grindelwald has lured everyone to the graveyard where he is having his rally. All the players are there. Kama, who is there to kill Credence, Credence and Nagini, Newt. Jacob, and Lita. After Kama gives his whole spiel about how he must kill Credence, he has sworn an unbreakable vow to do so because he is the son of Corvus Lestrange. Lita says, no, he's not, and I know he's not. And here is my tale. She tells how on a boat long ago, 1901. Not the Titanic. Not the Titanic. (laughs) She was sent to go live in America alongside Corvus Lestrange, posing as the grandchildren of the half-elf Irma. Mm -hmm. A storm strikes. The boat is stricken. Corvus crying a lot. Crying, crying, (laughs) crying, crying, crying. Lita, desperate for a moment of peace, switches the children, and the child who was switched is saved, becomes Credence. The real Corvus Lestrange goes down, bundled in a white sheet. And to prove this, she brings out her family tree which is this magical family tree, which only shows the men. The women are shown as flowers. And Corvus Lestrange's entry on that tree wilts Mm -hmm. and dies. Choked by Lita's flower, as described in the screenplay. Very tough. (laughs) This raises a lot of questions. Number one, let me just shout out Jason Gallagher. Would you know if your baby had been swapped? (laughs) A lot of chaos. It was a storm hit. It is at least addressed in the screenplay. Yes. Specifically called out that both Irma and the other woman who is identified as Credence's aunt, which is worth keeping in mind given the family reveal. Right. Who could that person really be? Here are the lines. Quote, Irma snatches baby Credence, not noticing the switch amid the confusion. And then about Credence's aunt, also not realizing the babies have been switched. So at least... There's an acknowledgement that people would ask that question, which in light of some of the other questions people are asking and the lack of acknowledgement of them, I found oddly refreshing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of moments in this film where Lita seems very disturbed that Credence could possibly be or is thought to be her 
relative. And we think that's because she's somehow ashamed that this would be the case. But no, actually, what it is, is it's bringing up this really long, buried, buried at sea sadness that she has, this guilt that she carries because she, her actions directly led to the death of a child. There's that moment right after she has unburdened herself of this. Newt, so compassionate, looks at her and says, you didn't mean to do it, Lita. So it wasn't your fault. Hold on a second. It's at least kidnapping. (laughs) Newt's very sweet. She did kidnap. Is that not correct? It's a big enough thing to not immediately be like, girl, you're good. (laughs) Would Theseus say you're good? Because it's probably, you know, he's down there and it's like he's so close to her. She smells great. She looks great. She looks great. He's just like, you killed the baby? Was that like a long time ago though, right? <laughs> 18 the, years ago? The the language of the poem, the prediction, which Kama shares aloud here is a son cruelly banished, despair of the daughter, return great avenger with wings from the water. Newt's very much like, let me banish your despair. Yeah, I can it's do fine. it. It's fine. I can do it. And then of course there's Lita's sacrifice. That's right. After unburdening herself. Right. This weight finally lifted and the moment of action arrives. Grindelwald has surrounded himself with the blue purifying flames. Black in the screenplay, by the way. Black Interesting. In the yeah, I guess because it just wouldn't show up. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I was like, oh. Weird. Yeah, I tried to imagine what that would look like in my mind's eye. Quite fascinating. I guess because it's nighttime, once they move from the amphitheater right. and the Just, fire goes outside, like you wouldn't be able to see it, maybe. Right. So they had to make it blue. I don't know. JK, darling, you're not going to be able to see it at night. <laughs> Black flames against the night sky. You won't see it. That's my David Yates. All I can care about is still being able to see King's Cross. <laughs> That's it. So finally, she decides I'm going to do one right thing in my life. And I'm going to attempt to save my friends and also take a shot at Grindelwald. Who knows? Maybe uh-huh. it works. And she attacks him. He easily parries. And she breaks the hookah pipe, though. She does. The hookah pipe the hookah does, skull. It does which fall I, into the flames. I completely missed that. It explodes. Yes. And reading that in the screenplay, I was like, okay, so, because one of the discussions that we had after the movie was, what did she accomplish here? Yeah. And there were varying degrees of how much did you allow yourself to invest emotionally in this character and in her arc in the mm-hmm. course of one film. I'm of multiple minds on well, Let this. me hear it. I think that because the movie is so crowded and there yeah. are so many characters, ultimately pairing that back is maybe a good thing. Like, at some point, the films need to actually shrink, not just keep expanding. Yeah. However, I actually am interested in this character and how she relates to these other people. I think that the respective love triangles, you know, Newt, Theseus, Lita, and then Newt, Lita, Tina, are pretty compelling to me. So I don't care really as much about the Corvus thing, which is all, you know, you have to really opt in very quickly to learning what that is in the first place. It is extremely hard to even hear what the poem prediction is. It's sort of— People are cutting each other off yeah, every time it's being read. multiple times you're getting a snippet of it, and it's not until Kama yes. reads the whole thing here at the end that you're like, okay. And it's also like, no shots, but like a French accent. So you're like, wait, wait, what? He says it very fast. Right. It's just hard to get a hold of it in the movie. But the thing I care about is the pull that she clearly has over other people. You know, there's that amazing line from Queenie in the first movie, to Newt, about Lita. She was a taker. You need a giver. So just getting more of that would have been appealing. But— Lita, of course, is not the only one in that room, though, who makes a decision. Grindelwald is speaking to thousands of people. Right. He's described in the script as, quote, part demagogue, part rock star, which I think 
Mm-hmm. They captured quite well. And he addresses his followers as my brothers and my sisters. And you can see that he really has a gift, a charm and a seduction. As we saw with Queenie, he is willing to tell someone something that he does not believe if it can draw them into his cause. And he has a real talent for discovering what that pressure point is, what yeah. that point of sensitivity is. So what is it here? It's a different tactic than Voldemort's. It's painting muggles as not some nothing disposable right. The bodies that, that make your throne that right, you sit on. That you would just rule over. No, they're to be feared. Uh-huh. They're aggressive. They're dangerous. And he says, I say the muggles are not lesser, but other. Not worthless, but of other value. Not disposable, but of a different disposition. Magic blooms in only rare souls. And he plays the same card for this room that he did with Dumbledore when they were children. Quote, oh, and what a world we can make for all of humanity we who live for freedom, for truth, and for love. And he looks at Queenie as he says this, knowing that this is going to seal the deal. And then he breaks out the hookah bong and then shows them the absolute destruction coming when World War II hits, culminating in the explosion of an atomic bomb. And everyone in the room is absolutely shocked. Jacob even is taken aback. He says, not another war. Right, because he fought in the first one. He fought in the first one. This is what we are fighting, he says. That is the enemy, their arrogance, their powerless, their barbarity. How long will it take before they turn their weapons on us? See, it's Uh self-defense. We're fighting a canny foe who is very smart not to be underestimated. This is his pitch. This is an extremely savvy strategy. And again, another huge difference between Grindelwald and Voldemort. Voldemort didn't care what other people thought. He ruled strictly through fear. He never appealed to somebody's instincts. That's right. What might make you want to fight not only for me, but for yourself. Grindelwald is a recruiter. He's a gifted orator, and he is successfully showing these people why they need to make this choice, why they need to make this change. And he is accounted for the fact that that might not be enough by then staging basically this farce that he has led these people into this trap for. The orators are here, he says, right? He has lured them because he knows that they will bite. And He this means whole- an inciting incident in order to show his followers or his prospective followers, you have to come with me because look at how violent they are. Exactly. And so one of his followers, this redheaded woman in the crowd, goes to attack one of the orators, and the auror immediately shoots to kill. It's the same thing that Newt, of course, who is obviously not on Grindelwald's side, has been attacking. and. Grindelwald immediately says, this is it, right? They're the violent ones. Go spread the word. Much like we think he allowed Spielman to live in the first place for a go spread the word reason. He wants everybody to be boasting about either his power or his generosity, but something that builds the legend. And of course, when he is appealing to Credence specifically, it is less about building the legend than about building understanding. So he sends one of his men to give Credence the note in the first place, the note that leads Credence to Irma. And he shows his acolytes in the townhouse that he has murdered the French family to occupy, shows them a hookah vision of Credence, it's of the Obscurial, and he says he's the key to our victory. And he positions Credence's need for love and family as the way in. Similarly to Queenie. Queenie doesn't need to know who she is, but it's all about this sense of belonging, wanting to find your place in the world. And Grindelwald says he must come to me freely, and he will. So again, in terms of the idea of persuasion, how do you maneuver around your mark and get him where you need him to be, but make him think that he's made the choice? He's trying to incept him almost. 
clearly he is leading him there deliberately all along the way. One of the things he says is the path has been laid and he is following it. Here you go, right? Yeah. The trail that will lead him to me and the strange and glorious truth of who he wow. is. Ah, what a truth it is. Or is it? Is it? And when Grindelwald shows up on the rooftop and Credence asks what he wants, Grindelwald says, from you, nothing. For you, everything I never had. But what is it you want, my boy? I want to know who I am, Credence says. This is where you will find proof of your true identity. And he tells him to come to the Strange tomb, to yeah, this amphitheater. It is, we must say, a pretty compelling pitch, yeah. just like the pitch that he is making to the masses. There's a reason that he's succeeding in gathering this many followers. I mean, listen, like it says in Ron's book for wooing witches, flattery works. <laughs> like if you tell someone something that they want to know, I want this for you. I want you to feel happy. I want you to feel complete. I want to find out what this is for you. 12 fail-safe ways to become a fascist. It's extremely seductive. <laughs> it is. And ultimately, when presented with that final test, that final choice, final for this movie, obviously, we don't think final in the franchise, but whether to cross the fire, Credence says to Nagini, he knows who I am. And Nagini says, he knows what you were born, not who you are, which is a very compelling J.K. Rowling idea. And then Credence does cross the flame because the desire is ultimately just too strong. Yes. He wants the information that Grindelwald has convinced him he needs to know. He's, he come, he's come too far at this point to not know. And Grindelwald embraces him and says, this has all been for you, Credence. And then later at Nurmengard, he presents him with a wand, a sign of true belonging in the wizarding world. Yes. The antithesis of what Grindelwald as Graves was shouting at him about being a squib and I could smell it on you. This is a way to channel your power. This is a sign of legitimacy. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he tells him the heavy air quotes we think, maybe, we hope, I don't know. We'll talk about it more. Truth of his parentage. Speaking of, yes. number two, best worst connections to established Canon. Let's start with the best before sure. we get to the worst. We're going to talk first about the Mirror of Erised because while this raised questions, it definitely raised questions, it was ultimately pretty fun to watch. It Very was. satisfying as a person who loves Harry Potter and loves the Mirror of Erised and what it represents in the story to see it, to see Dumbledore standing in front of it. What does he see? Screen direction from the screenplay. Quote, he has not looked into it for many years, bracing himself. He now does so. So we know that he has experience with this mirror before. And of course, everything that we had seen transpire between Dumbledore and Harry and Sorcerer's Stone, the way that Dumbledore speaks of the mirror and its pull over you, of how men have wasted yes. way before it, even been driven mad. Of course, the iconic line, it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. We start to see here what we had always suspected, which is the Dumbledore was speaking from firsthand experience yes. of the pull the mirror held over him. And we see teenage Grindelwald, teenage Dumbledore, cutting their hands with their wands. Now, important to note, in the film, at least we thought Dumbledore was holding the Elder Wand. In the screenplay, that is not specified. Right. We were looking for confirmation of that. It is not specified. We'll come back to the Elder Wand later. We see them link hands after they've cut them, and two droplets of blood rise, and they mingle, and they merge, and they create one. Quote, a metal shape begins to form around the droplet, becoming more defined and intricate. It is Grindelwald's vial. More blood pack talk coming soon. And then, here's the description. Quote, Dumbledore turns his head away, fighting the impulse to cover the glass. And then this vision, it's identified as a vision in the text in the screenplay, fades, and Dumbledore sees present-day Grindelwald smiling mm -hmm. out at him. How do we reconcile what we see there with right. what we know about how the mirror works, which is that it shows you not a memory necessarily, right. but the desire. deepest and most desperate desire of your heart. The wool and socks line, Harry always knew that that wasn't true. Of course, there's the beautiful, it had been a very personal yeah. question line. 
But in Deathly Hallows, after Harry has learned the truth about Ariana and Dumbledore's family, he realizes that— We hope. That, <laughs> what we hope is the truth, that Ariana and Dumbledore's family, that that is really what Dumbledore would yeah. have seen. His family whole and intact returned to him. Yeah. And so some people are upset that that's not what he saw here. However— we think we can rationalize that specific oh, I think element so, yes. because we know from canon, from Sorcerer's Stone, that what you see in the mirror can change based on the context of the moment. Right. So Harry sees, of course, his family right. when he looks into the mirror for those first few nights. Right. And then at the end of the book, he sees the location of the Sorcerer's Stone right. because that is what he desperately wants at that moment. Exactly. So it's reasonable to deduce that what Dumbledore would see in the mirror at any given moment in time could, could change. change. And also, yes. of course— Losing his family and thus seeing his family restored and preserved is directly linked to the choices that he made with Grindelwald. These things are all of a piece. The question that we have is really, we know that that blood pact is real. Right. Because that's one of the big reveals at the end of the film. So is this a memory? I rationalize it this way. And it bumped me pretty hard upon first watching the film. Now after thinking about and reading the screenplay, I think that what we're seeing is, one, that was a moment when he felt fully understood in love with that person. And then to see when it ends with the image of the elder Grindelwald as he looks now, I think it's showing you that his desperate desire is just to return to that relationship as they are now, as right. men. He wishes that they could be together in the way that they were when they made that pact as children, as yes. kids. To return either literally to the moment before right. everything went wrong right. or, or to currently be in a world where things had not gone wrong. Right. There could also potentially be a more magically and mythologically relevant explanation, which is that Dumbledore was holding the Elder Wand. And there's so many questions we have still about the mastership of the Elder Wand, but could that be part of it? Maybe. We at least want to throw that out there, that he saw a time where he had mastered the Mm -hmm. wand instead, where he had been the one who controlled it, and maybe if he had, things could have been different. How about another important individual in Albus Dumbledore's life? How about the homie Nicola Flamel? Nicky Flamel, not a very limber man, <laughs> uh, walks with a very strange gait. He is, you know, up there, getting up there these He's, days. Listen, how are you going to walk when you're north of 600, my guy? So in the movie, one of the things that I found strange was <laughs> that they go to Flamel's house and then Flamel is not there mm-hmm. for a good portion of the early scenes as they're fishing this parasite out of Kama's <laughs> eye. And he's making these horrible groans. And Flamel is not at all concerned by this. But then later on, as Jacob's stomach is rumbling, this stirs Flamel from wherever he was. And we get, or when we are introduced to the personage of Nicholas Flamel and is actually quite delightful. Charming guy. Yeah, nice guy. Doesn't keep a lot of snacks in the house, though. Well, he's not eating a lot these days. <laughs> also, bones very brittle. It has to be drinking some milk, or calcium just supplements. Don't extend the kindness of a handshake if you know your fingers are going to turn into dust. One of my things about Flamel is I wanted more of a flex from him. Right. Like he has that line about how he's an alchemist and thus immortal, and it's like, dude, right. you did the thing. Yeah, you did the. You thing. made the sorcerer's stone or the philosopher's stone. Own it. Yeah. Fucking brag about that shit. Not all alchemists are immortal. You did it. Speaking of that stone, we get to see it. We do. And what else is in the cupboard with it? A book. Very interesting book with a phoenix on the cover. Could this be a connection to the Order of the Phoenix from original canon? I I think it has to be. 
Clearly, this is some sort of communications device for some kind of group. Travers, in that earlier scene, referenced Dumbledore's friends that he uh, keeps in contact with. And Dumbledore says, like, listen, you can watch me and my friends all you want. You have built up quite a little network of international contacts. How do they keep in touch? Clearly, this book, as he flips through it, we see that Dumbledore's portrait page is empty. So he's not there, not able to. Oh, dear, Nicholas has. Oh, dear. So clearly, this is. Could that be because Dumbledore knows that because of the Ed Monitors? I I do wonder about that. He's like, I can't let them know about this. I can't give them access to this network, which. I mean, it's a thick book. You've got to wonder, like, how many other contexts are there? And clearly, with the Phoenix on the cover, this has to be some sort of precursor to the Order of the Phoenix. Yes. A uh, seems like it ad hoc group of like-minded wizards and witches who want to fight evil. Because when he can't find Dumbledore, he turns to Eulalie Hicks, slides into Jessica Williams's DMs. Hello. And we know from JKR that Jessica Williams's character, who is an overmorning professor, will play a bigger role in the next film. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you gotta go. And yes, Nicola you have to go says, to this, I to this haven't rally. been out in the field in a couple centuries. And she's you got to go. And so clearly this group not only exists, there's not only this network, but as you said, yeah. they have a mission, a there's clear something. mission, a clear purpose. In terms of established canon, we also just get more information about an Obscurial's magic, how the Obscurus works. Credence's parentage question is a huge part of the film, and we will talk about it at length, but just seeing the advancement and how he's able Mm -hmm. to harness his power in a scene like with Grimson, for example, is really cool. We're learning more about this with the characters, as we said, even Newt, who has studied them, doesn't understand how Credence has survived. And Dumbledore's comment about an Obscurial being like a dark twin, a friend, Mm -hmm. that, we think, really changes our perception of what this force is in a really important way that buttresses some of the theories. Because when you say dark twin, a friend... Mm -hmm. There's a sentience there. Then there's a... Yeah, Mm -hmm. there's something there. There's a personality behind it that is very different than what we thought about it before, which is just like a malevolent force. And taps into the queenie theory. That's right. That we'll discuss shortly. Also, in terms of a connection to original canon, the Boggart lesson, this was obviously in the trailer. We didn't know what form it would take, what year it would take. It was just cool to see. Really wonderful to recall... Such a meaningful moment between Lupin and Harry. Interesting note that Newt and Lita are 16, not 13 here. Newt's actual boggart being a desk is, is just a delightful insight into his character. Mm-hmm. It makes you go back to Beast One and the scene where he's in the wand permitting office surrounded by the desks looking so uncomfortable yeah. and assess something like that a little differently. And of course, Lita's boggart is a huge harbinger of what is to come with the Corvus tale. Also, of course, because of seeing Dumbledore in the classroom and in a lesson, we have to note one of the huge questions when the trailers came out and we saw Dumbledore clearly teaching defense was, well, our guy is supposed to be a transfiguration teacher. How do we account for it? So whether or not you like the answer, I think we can agree it's just refreshing that the film did address the question. Yes, I agree. It wasn't just a pure retcon. We know that he taught defense against the dark arts. We know now that he taught defense against the dark arts and that he had to abandon that post because of Travers's rule, at which point he presumably stole McGonagall's job because she's there already. <laughs> which is we'll talk problem. about that in a bit. <laughs> super, super tiny, but fun to see the owls, the, the interdepartmental memo carrying owls in the ministry, because we can think of Arthur's line Shouts about the to mess. My guy. Another one here, this is maybe divisive. Zach Cram, for example, thought this was a crime. Not the crime of Grindelwald, the crime of the crimes of Grindelwald, one of them. The new Lita memories are clearly an overt Prince's Tale homage. Yes. So you can say, I think probably fairly, that maybe this wasn't earned. But the flip side is, there is just an instant 
oh, yeah. I get what they're doing yes, here. I, I understand get what, what this is. Me. Which is, you respond to that emotionally, viscerally, whether or not you want to. What about that moment when Grindelwald is like, you know, I like this apartment. I'm going to steal it. Uh-huh. Me and my Death Eaters are going to kill this wonderful French family. Parisian real estate. You got to move it's when very you can. expensive. And then they discover a infant in another room playing by the floor. And he has one of his followers, Caro, kill this child right next to the crib after murdering the parents. Obviously, a very on-the-nose allusion to the way our original series begins. You mentioned Caro. We have connections to multiple Death Eater families mm-hmm. here. Caro's, Travers, Rosier, Vina. Why do, we, and, why do we say it like that? <laughs> and of course, the Lestranges. So multiple families who are in this movie will go on to become prominent Death Eater families, prominent supporters of Voldemort. Here, we see that Grindelwald's followers in the screenplay are described as masked acolytes, while the Death Eaters will certainly be masked. Recall that in Beast 1, when Graves gives Credence the sign of the Deathly Hallows, and he tells him, basically, he can use it, he can press it to summon him. We talked about this last pod, but worth recalling that here in this context. Clear dark mark precursor. Just so many signs here about the things that Voldemort maybe picked up from Grindelwald. Also, shouts to the fact that the Hogwarts point system is extremely broken and it's just basically the whims of whatever teacher. Across uh, time. Yeah, this is a, a ongoing theme there. <laughs> when Leader curses a young Gryffindor girl, sealing her mouth, we get this, stop, shame on House Slytherin, 100 points, 200 Is it 100 or 200? Well, that's the thing. It's whatever anyone wants. Also, that's a lot of points. That is. That's excessive. (laughs) I'm I'm thinking 50 tops. For sealing a mouth, that seems like to be 15 to 20 to me. I mean, like, did Hermione lose points for forever disfiguring Marietta the snitch? This this leads me to believe that Lita's been doing other stuff. Because 200 points, it's like ridiculous. All right. And then we get a nod to... McGlagan, another ancestor. Good stuff there. Let's move on to some of the worst. Or, bum, bum, bum. Listen, to be charitable, if we don't want to call them worse in every case, at least the jury is still out division of mm-hmm. connections to original canon where maybe we'll feel better about some of this stuff based on information to come. But in light of how it is presented here in the film, it is somewhere between troubling and deeply distressing. Yeah. We got to start, obviously. With the big one. With the big one. The reveal that ends the film. Grindelwald saying, to Credence, you have suffered the most heinous of betrayals, most purposely bestowed upon you by your own blood, your own flesh and blood. And just as he has celebrated your torment, your brother seeks to destroy you. And then he goes on to reveal that that brother is Albus Dumbledore and that Credence is Aurelius Dumbledore. So we have to ask... Did the Credence reveal potentially just upend established canon? Because Dumbledore's family history is a massive part of Deathly Hallows in particular, and at no point during Aberforth's confessions or Albus Dumbledore's confessions is a seeker brother ever mentioned. And we're going to run through, as quickly as we can here, all of the potential explanations for this that have occurred to us at this point in time. This feels like something the fans are going to be talking about for a long time and that in a day, a week, a month, a year, we'll have 10 more theories. But here's where we are right now. Number one, this is a lie from Grindelwald. Grindelwald is lying. Here's the evidence to support that. No matter what you believe about Albus Dumbledore, whether you adore him, you never trusted him anywhere in between, that line about 
just as he has celebrated your torment and your brother seeks to destroy you, that is not the Albus Dumbledore we know. It just isn't. That would be pure manipulation on Grindelwald's part. And so if you think that he is manipulating Credence, you have to ask how else he's manipulating him. That opens the door. Grindelwald then says there's a legend in your family that a phoenix will come to any member who is in dire need. And then this chick that Credence has been carrying stretches his wings and becomes a full phoenix, we believe. Fox, Grindelwald says, it is your birthright, my boy, as is the name I now restore to you, Aurelius, Aurelius Dumbledore. Okay, let's talk about the phoenix for a second. Right. Dumbledore says to Newt in their first meeting, well, I've always felt an affinity with the great magical birds. There's a story in my family that a phoenix will come to any Dumbledore who is in desperate need. They say my great, great grandfather had one, but that it took flight when he died, never to return. Now, the first hint we get of this phoenix is when Credence gets some bird seed before he goes to visit Irma. And then we see him feeding the chick right before Grindelwald's rooftop visit. Then at the end, the chick Credence has turns into the full phoenix when Grindelwald just a little gesture and reveals his name. But we know that Fox also presented himself to Harry, but that was in a moment when Harry was in mortal peril. But it's still an opening because the function that the Phoenix serves is that we've heard Dumbledore say earlier in the film, this is a thing associated with my family. So when you see it, you're supposed to believe it. Okay, well, the Phoenix is presenting itself. He must really be a Dumbledore. That's the function that the bird serves. So reminding ourselves that Fox has presented himself to someone other than a Dumbledore, even if that someone is associated with a Dumbledore, I'm really holding on tight to that. To the Grindelwald is lying. To the idea that we have canonical proof that a phoenix can present itself to someone other than an actual Dumbledore, even temporarily, because we don't know that Credence is going to be bonded to this bird for life. In fact, we think this is Fox, and thus he will not be. And again, we think it's Fox. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. More evidence that this could be a lie. Grindelwald clearly led Credence to find Irma. He says to Noggle, one of his men, I want you to go to the circus now, give my note to Credence, begin his journey. Okay, he wants him to find this person. Why? Then after that info leads Credence to Irma, Grimson, who followed him there, shows up and kills Irma. He waits long enough for her to confirm that she was a servant, not his mother, and that she gave him to Mrs. Barebone, but before she can share any other information. And then we get a scene where we see Grimson and Grindelwald in an alley. And Grimson says she's dead. Clearly, this was the plan, Mm -hmm. that they were supposed to lead him to get a glimpse of this person, learn a little bit, and then have the pipeline of information cut off to be under their control. Why do you need to control the information if it's true? Right. You only need to control it that way if it's a lie. Right. And Grindelwald, after asking, how did the boy take it, he says, they then sign off to each other by saying, for the greater good. Just a reminder of the way he operates This is a plot. And here's another one. Note that Grindelwald, as Graves, didn't know who Credence was in Beast One, was trying to get Credence to work for him to find— The child in his vision. The child in his vision, who he had no suspicion that it might have been Credence. Right. In Beast One, he says, you have magical ancestry, but no power. He says, you know, you're a squib. I can smell it on you. Clearly does not know who Credence is. So why now? Why now has he discovered— How quickly could he find it out? Now— on the one hand, he has an, a, clearly a wide operation of minions working for him. Sure. But on the other hand, he was in Makusa custody for six months. Only three months have passed since then. Is three months enough time after learning that Credence was the Obscurial to find out this truth, a truth that would be so deeply buried that possibly Dumbledore doesn't even know it at this moment in time, and that it never reaches the likes of, say, Rita Skeeter when she's yeah. writing about the lives and lies of Albus Dumbledore. She dug deep. Yeah. And if she never found this, it means it didn't make it far enough. 
presumably, or it was buried deep. Also, let's remember that Grindelwald has Abernathy and Co. go get the box from the Lestrange family records deposit at the ministry and plant it in the tomb. Now, there's a practical answer, which is they want to lure everybody to one place again into the jaws. Could it also be that something about that information was altered? That there was a benefit in having people believe that particular version of the Corvus story and then be perfectly receptive, Credence in particular, perfectly receptive to this information because that rumor that had been swirling about him being a Lestrange had been closed. He needs to use Credence as a weapon. Right, he has to. Against Dumbledore. He says to Crawl, R.I.P. Crawl. Tough look for my guy, Crawl. Earlier, earlier in the film, he says, who represents the greatest threat to our cause? Now, because of the blood pact, we think about it mostly, obviously, from Dumbledore's perspective, naturally, but let's think about it for a moment from Grindelwald's perspective. He can't move against Dumbledore either. This is crucial. We cannot lose sight of this. That means he needs someone. And he's right. like, Crawl, you going to do it? Right. Well, and no. Crawl's like, no, I can't. Touch that guy? Are right. you kidding? Nobody can. Dumbledore's legend, his standing, his stature is well established in this film of what his reputation was at this point in time. He needs to wield Credence's power, the Obscurus's power. He says Credence is the only entity alive who can kill him. But it's not just about power and magical ability. It's about the emotional impact. Right. Grindelwald was there when Ariana died. He knows what we have pieced together since we met Credence in the first film, that Ariana Dumbledore was an Obscurial, right? So he knows that what the impact of Dumbledore being faced with an Obscurus Mm -hmm. will have on him, and he wants to use that emotional damage against him as much as anything. And also, listen, (laughs) most importantly of all, wouldn't Rita Skeeter have dug this up? Right, She's right on most of her stuff. She would have known. She's going to miss the other brother? I just don't believe it. That's a tough one. Evidence that it's not true from a different perspective. What if this is a plot of Dumbledore's? This, we should say, this was not a wave one thought. This is like, we've been thinking about this for multiple days at this point, and we're looking for every possible- Holding on to Every possible option that does not upend original canon. This came to us late, but is pretty interesting. First of all, He clearly is aware, very, very plugged in to Grindelwald's moves. Mm -hmm. Has someone on the inside? Has some sort of information flow that's coming to him? He clearly wants Newt around Credence. That's been clear since the first movie. Mm -hmm. Seeing the Phoenix on Flamel's book and knowing that Dumbledore brought Flamel into play here. Dumbledore mentioning the Phoenix story to Newt, priming him for this. Mm Showing us he's, that he's thinking he's about He's thinking that. It, about it as well. So, what could presenting a phoenix to somebody make them think? So is Dumbledore trying to prime this idea in Grindelwald's mind, trying to push him this way? To what end? Hmm. We don't know. Then he says to Theseus, this is the proof to us that Dumbledore is quite plugged into Grindelwald's moves. He says, if Grindelwald calls a rally, don't try and break it up. Don't let Travers send you in there. If you ever trusted me, mm-hmm. this is exactly what Grindelwald is going to do. Mm-hmm. How does he know? Mm-hmm. How does he know? And then Flamel, when he opens the book, Eulali says, what's happening? Flamel, exactly what he said would happen. Who? Mm-hmm. Dumbledore, we assume. Mm-hmm. Grindelwald rallies tonight at the cemetery and there will be death. Dumbledore really knows a lot. He knows a lot. So is this part of his chess game? Where have we seen (laughs) Dumbledore using a young boy who doesn't understand everything about 
his right. history, has the no truth I- of his identity. Or wizarding culture, in fact. And his role in the end game to try to simultaneously use that person as a tool. And also, because we love Dumbledore while acknowledging his faults, knowing that he's leading that person to righteousness and truth and victory in the end. So, to be clear, the idea that Dumbledore could potentially be using Credence as part of a plot, that he could be trying to trick Grindelwald into thinking this or positioning it in some other way, we are not saying that he doesn't care about Credence. Quite the opposite, because of the theory we're going to be raising next. But it is in his character. Surely in his character. To say... How can this help me achieve my end? Right. And can I also help this person along right. the way? Let's talk about some of the potential ways that this could be true. Here is the only one that we can stomach. This, I think, is up there with Grindelwald lying as one of our two ideal outcomes. Yes. Because those are the two that don't upend <laughs> canon or have the least likelihood of upending canon. Ariana Dumbledore's Obscurus is now attached to Credence. When Dumbledore says that line to Newt that we've referenced a few times about how an Obscurus grows in the absence of love as a dark twin and only friend, if Credence has a real brother or sister out there who can take its place, he might yet be saved. Could he be speaking not only from an understanding of this magic, but from direct understanding of this particular Obscurus and what not having that loving sibling. Now, we know Aberforth loved Ariana and was able to calm her, but we also know that Albus carried the guilt about not being there for her enough throughout his whole life. In fact, he alludes to it directly in this movie when he's talking to Lita. She says, because she talks about having a brother who had died, and he says, for me, it was a sister. Did you love her? What is his response here? Not as well as I should have done. Not as well as I should have done. And then after a beat, it's never too late to free yourself. He never freed himself. Harry says that to Aberforth, that you would know if you had seen him as Harry had in the cave, drinking the potion, reliving these horrible memories, that he was never free. Could Ariana's Obscurus have attached itself to Credence either during the incident that led to Kendra Dumbledore's death, which would in that case be part of it because we know that the Obscurus still had to be in Ariana after that, Mm -hmm. or full transference during Ariana's death. Much like part of Voldemort's soul latching right. We've itself. We've seen stuff like this happen before. On to Harry after the killing curse rebounded against Voldemort. And this was undetected for yeah. quite a long time. It takes advanced magical understanding that only Dumbledore possessed yeah. to identify this. Why does Grindelwald need Queenie? Because uh-huh. he clearly does. He brings her in. And that scene, which we talked about again, the very end of the movie, Grindelwald and Queenie observing Credence, she says to him, you need to be careful. He's not sure he made the right choice. Be very gentle with them. Who is she referring to here? Is it Credence or is it this dark twin? Here's what we hope is the case. Yes. You don't need a legilimens, an empath, to talk to a person. Specifically Credence, who's out there telling everyone, this is what this I is want. This is what I want. This is what I desperately need. Tell me what I need to know. You can just talk to him, and he'll tell you what he wants. Uh-huh. You can't do that with an Obscurus. Is that why Grindelwald needs Queenie? I love that. If that's the case, this really supports this theory that the Obscurus is the dark twin, and this is 
Right. The sibling of Elvis. And that that specifically, because in this theory, Grindelwald knows this. And so when he is saying your brother, he is speaking not to Credence, but to the Obscurus, which is really cool to think about. It's really interesting to think about. It's into a universe of Horcruxes. Also, could then the Phoenix be sensing Ariana's Obscurus? Could that be the Dumbledore that the Phoenix is appearing to? That would be one more way that we could justify how this all fits together. The prediction fits here-ish. Mm-hmm. It fits in many things. And then, of course, there's the family tree. Right. And This seemed notable to me at the time. Yes. What you noted about how Alita says it only recorded the men. It's worth calling attention to that, to the specific gendered terms of the family tree and the prediction, Tycho's prediction. There's for the Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire fans out there, some very Valencore-esque stuff to us going on here. And it made us then call back to a line from Beast One that now stands out to us even more when Credence says to Graves about the vision of what he's searching for, if I knew whether it was a girl or a boy, well, what if this same force, this same dark twin has been a part of two people, Ariana and Credence? Some other options that we're going to move through very quickly because we don't want them to be true. Could this be Percival's son or could this be Kendra's son? So this would— Or uh, another member of the Dumbledore family. Right. So if it is actually Percival's son with Kendra, this would change what we know about Percival's— Conjugal visit schedule at Azkaban. Right. You know, what was going on at Azkaban at that particular time. Clearly, Kendra got in there to visit him. (laughs) And—or— as we've seen later on in the series, perhaps he got out without anybody knowing. Right, and didn't want to make his family suffer because right. we have seen the burden that his reputation for the crime that he committed, even though, of course, we know that the crime was from a position of trying to avenge his daughter. Here's the thing. Here's something that's happened in the last few days. When we left the theater, we said this cannot be Kendra Dumbledore's child because the math doesn't work. Here's the problem. Yeah. One of the things that the screenplay told us is that the math does work right. on that. It is keeps that possibility alive. We know that Kendra died in 1889. We thought the ship was much later based on our, it turns out, incorrect understanding of how old Credence was in the first movie. We thought he was 18. It turns out that in this film, he's closer to 27. Yeah. The ship sailing in 1901 is specifically stated. This allows for that baby to be hers and be yes, on the ship. absolutely is possible. I'm this is immensely distressing. Yes. Because... It also fits the language here of the prediction. Ariana's Obscurial, the despair of the daughter, attaching itself to Credence, the son cruelly banished when Ariana killed Kendra. Again, like Voldemort's soul attaching to Harry. If any of those possibilities are true, Percival or Kendra, now you noted that if it's Kendra's child with someone other than Percival, it would not technically be a Dumbledore, which is worth holding on to. But if any of these possibilities are true, why wouldn't Albus or Aberforth have accounted for this in Deathly Hallows? It just doesn't make sense that they wouldn't have And so what do we lose then if this ends up being true? Because King's Cross is one of the most important and cherished chapters to readers. There's two ways to look at it. One, Albus lied after his death in the King's Cross chapter. Why does Aberforth lie then to Harry? Well, I'm going to get to that in a second. So the first choice for Albus is he lied at King's Cross. The second choice is it didn't rise to the level of importance that he needed to mention it here. Because they were speaking specifically about Ariana. The second one seems like a fudge to me. The problem with the second one is that doesn't explain at all why Aberforth wouldn't have mentioned it. He surely would have because that was... Very germane to the conversation they were having, which is 
the Dumbledore family tree, everything that went on, the duel, etc. The, the relationships between the various family members. He surely would have mentioned it. So that is very strange. When Aberforth says to Harry, Ron, and Hermione, I knew my brother Potter. He learned secrecy at our mother's knees, secrets and lies. That's how we grew up in Albus. He was a natural. It simultaneously makes us believe that he would have just shared everything right then and there. And it does horrifyingly leave open the possibility that this could be true. Yeah. I'm still like, Rita, dig that shit up if it's real. Yeah, find it up. We are really hoping that it's not true. We're hoping that it's the obscurest theory or that it's a lie. But we do want to say, ultimately, as concerned as we are about that possibility, we trust in JK. Maybe she pulls it out. This has been tough. This particular thing has been tough. But she's yet to give us a reason to doubt. And you have to remember that as you were reading the first time, there were those moments. Oh, my God. Did Snape kill Dumbledore? Oh, my God. Has Dumbledore really betrayed Harry? And ultimately, everything did come together. Yep. Praying for the Obscurus. Elder Wand and Wand Transfers. First of all, where'd the Elder Wand come from? Where was it? Right. One of the biggest questions we had leaving Beast One was, Grindelwald, we know, has the Elder Wand at this time. Everything we know about canon. Where is it? And if he doesn't have it on him, it would make sense that he would use Percival Graves' actual wand since he's disguised as him. Then where is he hidden it? And when Tina and Newt defeat Grindelwald at the end, does that mean ownership of the wand transferred to them? Now, opening scene in the movie, Abernathy, who is Grindelwald, says to Spielman, Mr. Spielman, we found his wand hidden away. And he hands over a black rectangular box, which is not opened at that time. Right, and is ultimately a creature. Right, ultimately a chupacabra is in there. Pickery says, Abernathy? And Abernathy says, and we found this. And then he brings up the blood pact, which Spielman reaches for. And after a moment of hesitation, Abernathy lets him have it. So then a moment later, after the carriage takes off with Grindelwald, quote unquote, inside of it, actually disguised as Abernathy, there's a beat and Abernathy steps to the edge of the building and is there holding the elder one. And we realize that he's Grindelwald. Where was it? That's it. Where was it? Where was it this whole time that he was able to get it? And if he had it as Abernathy, why didn't he just leave? So here's why this matters. Yeah. In terms of this being a worst connection to original canon. Wand lore is an essential element to the story and to the ultimate battle between it's how Harry Voldemort and Voldemort. Harry. So these are questions that prove so vital in the original story, the ultimate outcome hinges on them. And yet they're not even asked here. They're not even addressed here. And so while we're sure there is an answer, mm-hmm. the film doesn't take the time to account for that part of very well-established, very imperative mythology, which is very distressing. Yeah. And then we have to ask about how this factors into the long game, the films to come. You know, in Deathly Hallows, when Mr. Ollivander is talking to Harry and says, the manner of taking matters. Much also depends on the wand itself. In general, however, where a wand has been won, its allegiance will change. So again, mm-hmm. what does that mean for Newt and Tina? Is Grindelwald the master of this wand? He's using it with great aplomb throughout right. the film. It does not seem to be withholding anything from him, but it's also the elder wand. So... Maybe he's still doing extraordinary magic because it's a great wand and he's an incredible wizard. So maybe this clarity, given that the wand will switch possession, we think, from Grindelwald to Dumbledore, we have always thought in 1945 in their duel, maybe that explanation is just on delay. But the wand returning to Grindelwald without accounting for how or whether someone else might actually be the master of it is concerning. And we do have to then consider that maybe we've had it wrong the whole time. This is actually intriguing. That maybe... 
nothing changed because he never really had it. We see Dumbledore holding it in the film in the Mirror of Erised, right. as we've discussed. Was that just a wish for how things had gone and said? Or could that have been an accurate memory of what really transpired? We now have to reassess the moment in Deathly Hallows when Grindelwald tells Voldemort, who has come to get the wand from him, your journey was pointless. I never had it. Now, right. we've always thought that this was a protecting, lie. Protecting Dumbledore. Right, in part end. because Harry directly frames yes. it as such to Dumbledore in King's Cross. Here's King's Cross again. Right. And Dumbledore does not correct him, instead nodding and saying they say he showed remorse in later years alone in his cell in Nurmengard. But now, of course, Dumbledore also says to Harry here, well, you know what happened next. I won the duel. I won the wand. Could there be more to it than that? We have right. to wonder and we have to assess anew your girl, Rita Skeeter's line. She's right about a lot of stuff. About the Duel of Legend. When she says in Deathly Hallows, all I'll say is, and this is when she's touting her book, don't be so sure that there really was the spectacular Duel of Legend. After they've read my book, people may be forced to conclude that Grindelwald simply conjured a white handkerchief from the end of his wand and came quietly. Now, obviously, this film gives us the blood pact and the implications to consider there about that impact on the duel. But maybe something about Mastership of the Elder Wand is also at play here. Another worst. This is a very tough one. This is extremely troubling, this one. Minerva McGonagall, McGallion, being in this movie. Now, we had convinced ourselves that this was the great-grandmother of Minerva, who she is named after, a very talented witch. And then we realized she's not a McGonagall. Not a McGonagall, guys. (laughs) The great-grandmother and not a McGonagall. From Pottermore. The birth of the young couple's first child, Minerva, proved both a joy and a crisis. Missing her family and the magical community she had given up for love, Isabel insisted on naming her newborn daughter after her own grandmother, an immensely talented witch. Her mother, Isabel, was a Ross. Her father, Reverend Robert, was the McGonagall, but he's the muggle. So it can't be that Minerva, which means it must be ours. This is problematic. Also in the script, she's referred to as young Minerva McGonagall. Like young, like not in utero yet? Because there's no other. (laughs) Right. Now, here's what we know about the timeline. In Order of the Phoenix, which takes place between 1995 and 1996, McGallion tells Professor Umbridge that she's been teaching at Hogwarts for 39 years. Right. Meaning she joined the school around 1956. Long way off from 1920s, 19. We see her, yeah, in two timelines here. The present 27 and then even earlier than that. So if we back back to account for the couple of years that we know McGonagall spent in the ministry before joining Hogwarts, we place her birth at 1935. The scene in which McGonagall tries to stop Travers from apprehending Dumbledore takes place in 1927, and the scenes with young Lita even earlier. So she should not be born, let alone a grown woman teaching at Hogwarts. And also, we know from Pottermore that Albus was her transfiguration teacher when she was in school. And in the movie, he's teaching defense at this point and then presumably stealing her job. What is happening here? What does this mean? So we have a couple of theories on what this possibly means. Well, first of all, we should note that J.K. has been noted to be bad at math previously, but never in this way, mostly in the way of speaking in an interview uh, off the top of the dome. She'll get the years wrong on certain things or note that a character is younger or older than he or she is. This is getting a character's age wrong by some 40 years. Is it just the case that the movie people were like, hey, you know what would be really fun is let's put uh, McGonagall in there. Right, a little Easter egg for the fans. Real miscalculation, if that's that's true. Here's why this is concerning, though. Because ultimately, what does it matter? You could be saying that, well, loosen up, what does it matter? It matters because if something this small 
can change. We don't know how to hold on to anything. Then in the we story. do have to ask, yeah. okay, well, what does King's Cross mean? Does that have to hold up or can that change too? And that is an upsetting prospect. Right. There's also something else that we need to note. Does film canon and book canon align in all cases? You just don't know. Here's my thing on this. Sure. There is a difference this time. Because like, she wrote it. Because there's no other story to fall back on. Right. So the original eight films were being adapted from her works. The ability to adapt a story and then creating it from whole cloth is different. Like, there's just some stuff that, as much as it might grate on you as a person who cares about the books, that you have to say, okay, this is a two-hour, 20-minute movie. It's not an 870-page yeah. book. Creating this story and not having it fall into the rules and choices of the universe that would not be a thing that we have seen before. Yeah. Like even something like Dumbledore not freezing Harry atop the tower, which is like, we think an unforgivable choice that the movies make, that Half-Blood Prince made. Yeah. We still have the right version of that story. And it didn't change anything about that story. This would. I cannot accept that. That would be really tough It would be devastating. Me. I refuse to believe that that's even possible. Next, Nagini. <laughs> Thank you. Goodness for small blessings, but uh, you know we really expected a lot more from Nagini, and you know it's such a twisty, turny story with many, many characters. So we really don't get anything of Nagini. She says a couple of lines, and is one of the good guys is there on the bridge when Newt and Travers and the rest of the Aurors go to meet Dumbledore at the end of the film. What does this mean for original canon? Does Dumbledore know who she is? Does Dumbledore know what she becomes? Does Dumbledore then giving Harry and co. the mission to hunt Horcruxes, does he do that with full knowledge that Nagini is a, formerly a person? And does she know that he won the Elder Wand in the duel? And if so, why doesn't she just tell yeah. Voldemort that? And also, you know, another lament that's adjacent to this, it would have been great to really get more of an idea of Credence and Hurd's relationship how they came to be drawn to each other. Obviously, they're two outcasts being oppressed and used as literal circus animals, but it would have been great to really get more of that. Lastly, how are they apparating onto the grounds at Hogwarts? They're apparating onto the bridge. I guess you could say maybe it's just the bridge, but even if we buy that they've yet to increase security from the Grindelwald threat, there's the newspaper headline at the beginning of Beast One in that montage that said, Hogwarts school increases security. Well, and we also know that Hermione knows that people can't apparate onto Hogwarts grounds from Hogwarts of history, meaning it happened sometime in the past far enough back that this should have been the case then. Very tough. Number three, the Extremely Gabbard of Fire I Love Magic Award for best use of, depiction of, or introduction of magical item, ability, place, or thing. Let's start with the Blood Pact, obviously, because this is a big one. Now, Kama's Unbreakable Vow is a nice reminder for us of this type of magic mm -hmm. that locks you into a choice, a promise, a pledge. The Blood Troth, which is how it's also referred to in the screenplay, seems to be like a cousin of this. Not the yeah. same, but at least related enough to give us some understanding. So when Dumbledore says, I can't move against Grindelwald, it has to be you, to Newt, you know, we've heard this in the trailers and we've always thought, well, We've known that Dumbledore waited a long, long time to fight Grindelwald. You know, in Hallows, he tells Harry, I delayed meeting him until finally it would have been too shameful to resist any longer. People were dying, and he seemed unstoppable, and I had to do what I could. And then that line we already talked about, well, you know what happened next? I won the duel, I won the wand. Do we know what happened next, though? Right, we because don't, Because the blood pact, unlike some of the other things that we've just discussed, simultaneously fits within canon and enhances our understanding of it. It opens new doors that we've always suspected might be there, but had never walked through before. We long thought there were emotional reasons for Dumbledore's delay. And of course there are. 
And that's kind of what's cool about this. The blood pact gives a magical explanation that does not remove or eliminate the emotional explanation. That magic is tied up in that emotion, in that love, in that commitment. And so the Niffler, this is an incredible moment in the movie. Pickpocket Niffler. Steals it from Grindelwald, who's just wearing this precious thing like a brooch on his Let me just say this. You didn't see like a an animal the size of a large rat reach up to your lapel. Crawling on you, like moves his boot at one point. I guess he's preoccupied with his horror entrapment, but even so. And when Newt presents this to Dumbledore at the end, Dumbledore from the screenplay, quote, stares at it, simultaneously tormented and amazed. Tormented, of course, by the reminder of this choice he made. And Newt says, it's a blood pact, isn't it? You swore not to fight each other. And then the stage direction says, bitterly ashamed, Dumbledore nods. So Newt says that Grindelwald, like Voldemort, doesn't understand the nature of things that he considers. Simple. Very Voldemortian idea. Will this play a role in his downfall too? Well, Dumbledore is, quote, overcome and tearful. As Newt asks if he can destroy it, and he says, maybe, maybe. Does he find a way to destroy it? Or will his failure to find a way to destroy it ultimately play in to Rita's line about how this duel isn't really what you thought it was? We don't know everything about how the blood pack mm-hmm. works. For example, we know an Unbreakable Vow, if you break it, you die. What happens if you try to break a blood pact. Do you die? Does somebody else die? We don't know. We yeah. don't have that level of clarity. But this introduction it feels very of a piece with what we already know. Allows the canon to expand but doesn't violate it. Yeah, I really it. liked so, it. This is cool. We did get, we wanted to share this question that we got on Twitter because this is really interesting. Brian Hennessy said, question for either of you, since the blood pact was the reason Dumbledore couldn't fight Gigi, Geller Grindelwald, how were they able to fight each other in the infamous three-way battle? Wasn't that after the pact? Good question. Great question. Clearly, we don't know enough about what actually happened there. Is it possible that something about the way the pact reacted to this battle played a part in Ariana's eventual death? And is that why Dumbledore is so wary about making his next moves? Grindelwald also wary about directly challenging Dumbledore? Or— did Aberforth's involvement in this three-way duel change the metric of the magic somehow? We don't know, but it's fascinating to think about. Rapid fire here. Some of the other new magic that we loved. Flamel's book. I love it. Obviously, uh, Dumbledore was a genius, created the Deluminator. I love the idea that he would also have created something like this, specific and very rare that he could use to communicate with his closest associates. Fits in, of course, with what we know about how he he invented the method of communicating via Patronus. Yes. Dumbledore's glove. Uh, that was really cool. Just visually really fun and uh, Also playful. just like cute. It's the BDE that we love so much. That <laughs> big Dumbledore energy. The fire at the end. Not only visually arresting to see this play out in the film, but we really like that the way that this fire seems to test your intentions, your loyalty, your soul, reminds us a little bit of the Mirror of Erised. We mentioned this in our video, but... The idea that the mirror only allowed you to find the stone if you wanted to find it but not use it, that the fire here would test your loyalty. Another link there between Grindelwald and Dumbledore that's pretty cool to contemplate. What about the hookah, baby? Love a skull hookah. Love a skull hookah. So Mallory and Isaac and Zach and I, as soon as the movie ended, we were talking about this thing as the magical skull hookah and open up the script. Guess what it's called? Skull hookah. Skull hookah. (laughs) It's actually called that. It's called Skull Shaved Hookah. <laughs> really something. And then the newt tracking magic. I was a little less into this than you were just because I'm like, how does this work? This is yeah. a good example of one where 
it's cool and you're like, whoa, I'm gripped. But also, how does this work? And in the book, you know, and in the movie, you don't. That's a little tough. Number four, the He Was That Friend Award for the most effective snapshot of angst or romance. Plenty of romance in this. We've talked about a lot of it. Obviously, the thing that we're most grateful for is just these precious, precious glimpses of Grindelwald and Dumbledore interacting as young men. Really giving each other the heavy fuck me eyes (laughs) in all these flashbacks. I pray we get more of this in future movies. I think it's clear that they're leaning that way. In fact, I found myself watching this being like, please kiss, and none of that happened, We were like, Bunty, take off your shirts! At the same time, maybe it's because of the comments when this arose in the press, in various interviews, this subject arose, and and we heard that it wasn't going to be Mm -hmm. in the movie. I felt surprised at how much we did get. I was grateful for what we got, particularly Dumbledore's much more than brothers line, which is an acknowledgement of his sexuality. And this is one of the things that Jude Law does best in this film. When he is looking into the mirror and looking up at the portraits that Travers is showing, you see the desperate longing Mm -hmm. in his eyes. And I just really hope we get more of that. We're not going to get more of Newt, Theseus, and Lita because Lita's dead. That's tough. Tough stuff for her. Maybe we will. Maybe we'll get more in memories. I mean, surely we have to find out. Listen, if Newt and Lita were so close at Hogwarts, it does raise the question, why are they not together? They liked each other. Something happened. So clearly, uh, you would expect we would get some sort of flashback to fill that in. I will say one of the highlights of the movie for me was Lita turning to Theseus and Newt and saying, I love you. Well, and it angle is that they were standing. <laughs> just completely unclear who she's talking to, which I thought was very well done on the film's part. That you at that point, again, just spending one movie with her because she's just a portrait. She's just an idea mm-hmm. in the first film. You are totally able to believe that she is speaking just to Theseus, just to Newt, or to both of them. I think she was speaking really to Newt, but also with some affection for Theseus, who is my new husband. Wow. I love him. Newt, Tina, Lita love triangle. So Tina and Newt, wildly cock-blocked by a misprint in Spellbound. Spellbound needs Zach Cram. This is an incredible plot twist. (laughs) Newt is listed as the fiancé of Lita Lestrange in Spellbound, which Tina, I guess, reads, sees, and then... Gives up on her dream of being with Newt's commander. This is ludicrous. I honestly just like, I need to believe in Tina more than this. I need to. I know you're a professional investigator. Come on. (laughs) When Newt and Tina are sort of pushing their way back to the truth together, though, we do get this delightful scene where Newt is attempting to profess his love, but also is being pulled back by the dating advice that Jacob has given him, which is don't tell her that she has salamander eyes. And in this really touching moment where Eddie Redmayne is, you know, fighting back the tears and he's trying to describe her eyes but not say it and then she yeah, that's sort of actually very charming. pulls him in and lets him, they both are thinking the same thing about the eyes and it's just a delightful moment. Newt, as you mentioned, also has a foot fetish and is obsessed with looking at Lita's heels as they approach in the ministry right, and like, tracking oh. Tina by her narrow footprints. We got to spend a moment here. It would be a dereliction of duty not to spend a moment here talking about Bunty. Poor, poor Bunty. Tough look for our girl Bunty. Tough look for Bunty, who is putting herself through the rigors of dealing with various magical animals, all for the slim hope that she might bed one Newt Scamander, and it ain't going to happen because those feet be like cauliflowers. (laughs) 
likes a slender foot, Bunty. I, I think that she probably loves the animals too, but she definitely wants to see Nude Skelpie, and he's not showing it, which is tough. Here's the description in the screenplay. She is a plain girl, crazy about creatures. There you go. She loves them. Hopelessly in love with Newt. And then we get an all-time stage direction shortly thereafter when, as Newt is about to dive into the Kelpie tank, we're going to read. Here's how it goes. Bunty, parentheses, hopeful, perhaps you should take off your shirt. Newt, parentheses, oblivious. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll dry off quickly enough. Just an absolutely iconic exchange. And then we get the italicized description. Bunty, transfixed by the sight of Newt in his wet shirt. And she is, again, as noted earlier, identified in Spellbound as unknown woman. Very tough. <laughs> Number five. Sights and sounds, the most notable hair costume score CGI element or visual. Grindelwald's escape, I thought, was a little convoluted and confusing, but Look cool. it was really, really <laughs> exciting to watch. I like the moment when he puts the Elder Wand down into the Hudson and the water yeah, fills, fills up the carriage. Also, it's just great to see Thestrals. Anytime we can Love see Thestrals. Thestral. Obviously, the baby nifflers were. There's just so much trouble. This is my thing with the baby nifflers. Just, come on. Here's my thing. Give me Stealing everything. Give me a champagne cork. And let him go for a ride in the room because they are fabulous. I love it. Kelpie tank. Love the Kelpie. Basically like a big seawater horse. Give me some of that ointment. And I love, I just love anything with Newt and the animals caring for the animals, whether it's in the case or in his menagerie. I love that. Can I share one line with you? Speaking of Newt's menagerie, this is a description. Interior. Newt's sitting room. Night. A Spartan bachelor residence. Newt's real life is in the basement. Should we send Newt's Commander a Blog Boy t-shirt? Yes, I think we must. <laughs> Newt's real life is in the basement. Blog very Boy tough. Newt. The Circus Arcanus was quite thrilling to watch. Very, very eerie, very carny atmosphere. I enjoyed that. Also, Nagini's transformation I thought was really well handled. Yes. Almost disturbing to watch, we but wanted also more. We wanted more of Nagini's character, but getting to see that was... One thing about this is because, again, the movie felt so crowded, maybe the fact that they're saving this is mm -hmm. a, ultimately will benefit the character. That when we learn more about Nagini, we will have more time to appreciate what we're learning. We can only hope. You loved the Zawu. I did love the Zawu. Poor abused animal, much they, like the dragon and Gringotts. I thought the emotiveness of the face, of the CGI very face sweet. of this animal was wonderful. Very much like a cat, which love, I know you like. Love a cat. Loves its little little bird toy that yeah. Newt uses to lure it into the case. The French Ministry of Magic looked really cool. This domed building yeah. where the archives move like literal family trees and all of it was just so visually arresting and there are many dunks on the French embedded within yeah. and uh, it just looked damn cool and until the Zawu crashed through the glass dome ceiling of course. And then our guy Kama and his eyeball. A lot of right eyeball stuff in this movie. Very tough tentacles coming out of my guy Kama's eyeball. Shouts to Kama, who literally captures Newt's commander and Tina and then goes, ha ha, I'll be back after I kill Chris. No! And screams, grabs his eyeball and faints. My thing here is still, you were outraged by that. I'm like, Tina, give Newt and co. a heads up that That's your great. captor has imprisoned you here. I just love when she goes, that was my one witness, Newt. And it was like, you're sleeping in a sewer right now. What are you're you drooling on papers <laughs> you as you're talking bed? about. Number six, best quote. We've talked about some of these already. We'll run through this quickly. We've talked about this one a million times, but Dumbledore's and Obscurus grows in the absence of love as a dark twin and only friend line has potentially huge ramifications. Right. Dumbledore to Newt, should things at some point go terribly long, it's good to have a place to go. You know, 
for a cup of tea. Just the way Jude Law delivers that is fantastic. He is iconic. Another Dumbledore to Newt line that we talked about, but want to emphasize here. Do you know why I admire you, Newt, more perhaps than any man I know? You do not seek power or popularity. You simply ask, is the thing right in itself? Huge. Bunty, so desperate to get with Newt Scamander to lay with this man, she is talking about the droppings of animals. She says, Elsie's droppings are nearly normal again. Bunty, you got to try something else. Yeah, like, perhaps you should take off your shirt. Didn't work either. (laughs) Jacob to Newt when Newt is on his... And we'll look in the dirt now. (laughs) Very tough moment for Newt there when he is literally licking the sidewalks of Magical Paris. Dumbledore to Travers. If you'd ever had the pleasure to teach him, you'd know Newt is not a great follower of orders. That was just a, a fabulous one. Dumbledore to Lita. Everyone's scared of something. Really Dumbledore to himself, I think. And he's reaching out to her Beautiful. there also. And then in that same conversation, Dumbledore to Lita again. Regret is my constant companion. Do not let it become yours. Newt to Tina. I'm sorry, but I can't admire people whose answer to everything that they fear or misunderstand is Kill it. A good mission statement for Newt there. That's why Tina's the middlehead. <laughs> Newt to Tina again. My brother Theseus, he's an aura and a hugger. I loved this one. As a hugger, I got a kick out of this. Lita to Newt. Oh, Newt, you never met a monster you couldn't love. Again, not only putting a bow on their relationship there, but another reminder of what is so core and central to Newt's character. He believes that people can come back to the light. Mm -hmm. And Grindelwald, I think, summing up the attractiveness of his pitch with this. Only here shall you know freedom. Only here will you know yourself. Credence, when he's about to go over and cross the flames, he says, he knows who I am. And Nagini says, he knows what you were born, not who you are. This, of course, is a quintessential J.K. Rowling Harry Potter idea. That's the kind of idea that we're hoping the next film leans into more. And then finally, this is up there with my favorite in the whole movie in terms of, again, tapping into the essence of who Dumbledore is. Grindelwald says, Mr. Scamander, do you think Dumbledore will mourn for you? I mean, that's the very question that gnaws at Harry through so much of Deathly Hallows, isn't it? And ultimately, the answer there was yes, he would have. So hopefully that's what it is here, too. We believe it is. We believe in Dumbledore. And speaking of, who won this movie? Jude Law. Jude Law by a mile. Best Dumbledore by far. Fabulous movie, Dumbledore, the best we've had. He really captured that thing that J.K. mentions Dumbledore quite often in the books as having a a twinkle in the eye, and and Jude Law really captures that, the mischievousness of Dumbledore. He has the power. Yeah. He exudes the ability, but also the warmth, that there's something there that you don't understand, but also someone there that you can trust, you can believe in, that you would want to fight for him, and that you would— hope that he would fight for you. He's not telling you everything, but you trust him anyway. Also, he fucking looks great. I mean, he looks great. And then shouts to Eddie Redmayne, who once again is incredible, and Pickett, who we love. The real amazing thing that Eddie Redmayne does here is that he has to know that this is, like, not his series anymore. That it was initially presented as this thing that was about Newt and the Beast and is obviously really the Dumbledore franchise. And he's still crushing it in every scene. He really is. But yeah, Pickett, always the always the MVP. All right, friends. If you'd ever had the pleasure to podcast with them, <laughs> you'd known Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, are not great followers of orders. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey. And that you'll join us again next time when we will be resuming our Deathly Hallows deep dive by exploring chapters 15 through 17. Please also check out our instant reactions, crimes of Grindelwald's video breakdown on the ringer.com and the Ringer's YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Ringer's YouTube channel while you're there. Give a listen to our appearance on the Big Picture podcast with Sean Fantasy mm-hmm. and check out our various other coverage of this film across Ringer properties. 
Till next time, remember, binge mode can't move against Grindelwald. It has to be you. You should take off your shoes. No, I'll be off. I'm all right, Bunty. Bunty, those flats? Size, uh, size nine? God, big instep. Am I right? Jesus Christ, Bunty. Cover those things. They're hideous.